Today's scripture is in Acts 19, and we're going to read from verse 21 to the end at verse 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines in Artemis, of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposited from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Arist Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers to our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. You may be seated. How are you doing tonight? <clears throat> doing well? Yeah, I'm excited uh, just to continue uh, in this series that we've been in in Acts. We've been in Acts for a while. I actually uh, heard the other day, my wife had a little uh, video on our phone, I think from like, had to be like two years ago. And in the background, we were still preaching the Acts series. So that was two years ago. So we've been in the Acts series for some time. But I hope that it's kind of building in your hearts and it's layering and kind of, I always think of spending time in God's word as digging the well, you know, and you need to be able to have a deep well to draw from in your life. So we don't want a surface level understanding of the scriptures. We want to go deep and plumb the depths of God's word. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're plumbing the depths of God's word here uh, through the book of Acts. We've been in Acts now for a while. We're continuing in that series. 
But the last several weeks, I can't help but feel like we've been in a little bit of a mini-series in the book of Acts, and we've been following Paul in his third and final missionary journey, uh, and we've been following him as he's now spent some significant time uh, in Asia, in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. So he's in Ephesus, and he's there for a period of about uh, two years And it's a really significant time in Paul's ministry. Uh, Luke dedicates almost a third or or like, yeah, like a third of the account here um, in Acts to the time of this third missionary journey to the time that he was uh, in Ephesus. And so it's a significant portion and period of time uh, in Paul's ministry. It's really, really important that we see what's going on. And so we've been taking a closer look at at these events found in chapter uh, 19, focusing in here on the church of Ephesus, but dealing specifically with the topic of idolatry. That's really what we're talking about here. It's the topic of idolatry. We focused last week, Pastor Tim's sermon, um, and he said to the Ephesian church, we're talking about the Ephesian church, that he feels as though, Pastor Tim said, that it is our church most resembles the Ephesian church. And I would agree, and I would actually kind of expand that scope to say that I think the church in America largely resembles the Ephesian church, right? That the church in America largely resembles the Ephesian church. And what are we talking about? Well, if you remember um, in Revelation where Pastor Tim preached from, He mentioned the letter that was sent to the Ephesian church, and it's marked with this statement that should jar and shake us as believers. It says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, that we have abandoned the love that we had at first. That it's the lack of love in the Ephesian church that is of concern. And that should be a concern to you and I as well. Have we abandoned our first love? Do we still have a sincere love for Jesus Christ? That's the question for you and I. We can get good at doing church, right? We can know the songs. We can raise our hand at just the right time. We can respond. We can serve in ministry. We can know how to be religious. And as we'll talk in just a few moments, religion is also a form of idolatry, We can know how to do that, but lack a sincere love in our hearts for Jesus Christ. You know, we're warned by Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verse 12, that this could happen. It says in Matthew 24, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's a hard conversation that we have to have. We have to stare ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves sincerely this question, how is my love for Jesus doing? Not my love for the things about Jesus, right? Not my love for uh, the word, which we should have a love for God's word, but my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How is my love for Jesus? Do I have a genuine love for Jesus Christ? A personal walk with him, just like my closest friend, where I walk with him daily and commit my life to him and to following Jesus at all costs. So let's ask ourselves that question sincerely. How is my love for Jesus? Do I have 
a personal walk with Jesus or do I just know about Jesus? Do I know about him in my mind but not in my heart? You know, I've heard it said uh, in a tract, you can miss heaven by 18 inches, right? Your head and your heart. You can know Jesus but not know Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So how is your love for Jesus doing as of late? Is it growing cold? Have we abandoned our first love? Have we gotten so good at doing church that we forgot why it is that we're all here? So we're warned about this in scripture. And I I really felt challenged in my own walk uh, over these past several weeks, even in preparing for this message and hearing Pastor Tim's message last week, I, I felt challenged to ask myself the question about where I feel my love is at, the temperature of my love for Jesus. And as we look at this passage today, I really feel like it deals the knockout punch to idolatry in our lives. We really, as believers, followers of Christ, we need to get skilled at identifying idolatry in our own hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. There's idols in our heart that are elusive, that if we're not paying careful attention to the word of God and asking ourselves these kinds of questions about our love for Christ, if we're not careful uh, to sense those things or to see those things happening in our lives, we can be like the Ephesian church. We can abandon our first love. So that's what we're talking about today. We're gonna be dealing the knockout blow to idolatry in our hearts. And while in Ephesus, Paul encounters this enemy, this enemy of idolatry, which is still alive and active in our world uh, today. Maybe it doesn't take the same form that it did then, but don't be mistaken by its ability to adapt and take on new forms. So we don't worship graven images or statues made of marble or silver amulets. However, the idols we worship are, I think, even more dangerous because they are heart idols, idols that are deeply embedded in the recesses and in the cracks and the crevices of our own hearts. But before we look more closely at idolatry and seeing Paul's knockout blow to idolatry, I wanna take a quick look at verses 21 and 22. Really significant, uh, these two verses in chapter 19, verses 21 uh, and 22. A little bit of a transition statement that we're reading here. It's this incredible adventure that we are on. And as Paul's time, as we'll see here shortly, is coming to an end in Ephesus, Luke is beginning to set us up for the next part of this grand adventure where we watch the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. You know, Paul took this mission personally As a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, he took the mission to spread the gospel, to make Christ known, to make disciples of all nations. He took it personally, and I think he was determined to fulfill it single-handedly. Luke starts by mentioning that Paul resolved in the spirit. Isn't that a really cool passage, the way it says that? It doesn't say Paul resolved in his own spirit, but it's capital S, that he resolved in the spirit, resolved in the spirit, which means that he had agreement with the Holy Spirit, that he agreed with the direction in which he sensed the Holy Spirit was leading him. How many of you have ever sensed the Holy Spirit leading you in a direction and you said, no, thank you? 
I'm not talking to that person in line at the grocery store. I'm not opening up my mouth to pray for that person that God has put on my heart. I'm not going to call that person. Or if you sense the Spirit leading you, you thought, nah, never mind, forget it. Here we see Paul, in one of those instances, being in agreement with the Spirit, sensing that the Spirit was leading him in a particular direction and being in lockstep with what God was calling him to do. Paul agreed with where God was leading him. And we learn this valuable lesson in this statement, this very brief statement. Don't resist what God is doing in your life. Trust the leading of the Spirit. You are filled with the Spirit of God. If you are a believer, there's no doubt about that. You are filled with the Spirit, meaning that you have everything you need for life and for godliness. So where is the Spirit leading here? We see uh, in this passage exactly where the Spirit is leading Paul. Paul resolved in his spirit to go back through the churches that he had just planted to encourage them while he is on his destination to Jerusalem. And he intends to go to Jerusalem to bring an offering to the church in Jerusalem because it was in such great need, which I think is a pretty interesting turn of events. If you think about it, the church was birthed in Jerusalem and now these churches that Paul is planting is giving money to that church, the church that drew to the church in Jerusalem. Although the church started in Jerusalem, it's the newer churches filled with young believers who are now responding to the gospel in generosity to help the church in Jerusalem, which I think is just an incredible display of unity and is an evidence of the fruit of the gospel at work in the hearts of these new believers. It doesn't matter if you've known Jesus for your whole life or if you've only come to know him in the past week, you can be obedient to what God is leading you to do according to the word. And we see fruit of the gospel bearing itself out in the lives of these young churches. They're they're raising funds to send back to the church in Jerusalem. And so we can see the gospel is indeed advancing. It's, it's, It's taking root in people's hearts. And after arriving in Jerusalem, Paul plans to go to Rome. He essentially finished, at least in his mind, evangelizing the eastern part of the Roman Empire and was now prepared to establish a base of operations out of Rome. He wanted to evangelize the western part of the Roman Empire as far west as Spain. Paul was ambitious for the gospel. He wanted to see the gospel spread. He wanted everybody to have the opportunity to know Christ like he knew Christ. And along the way, Paul encounters different people from different cultures all over the Roman Empire. And what he found, and what you and I will discover today, is that at the center of every culture, there are idols. There is an idol that people are tempted to worship as their savior. And it is the job of the church to be countercultural, not to make friends with the culture, right? Not to try and adapt the culture and make it work and fit in the church, but to be countercultural by living out the gospel's implications so that we can stand apart from the culture, so that people can have the hope of knowing Jesus Christ, so that people can be saved. It's our job to be distinguishable from the world around us. 
We should not look like the rest of the world, nor should we try to, you know, put lipstick on a pig. You know what I mean? We shouldn't try to do that as Christians. We should live according to the gospel in such a way that it's refreshing to the rest of the world how we live, the culture of the kingdom. And for this to happen, we must become refreshingly distinguishable from the culture in which we live, which is precisely what we see happening in this final section of this narrative of Paul's time here in Ephesus. I'm gonna read it again, and then we're gonna jump into this together. Fair warning, if this is okay for me to say, I'm kind of standing on my tippy toes a little bit to try and grasp these concepts myself. This feels like it's just out of reach for me. And so I'm trying to figure this out with you a little bit because this is a really powerful passage where I think we learn a lot from the scriptures. And so let's figure this out together a little bit as we uh, look at this passage here. We're gonna go back starting in verse 23. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is Christianity, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, "What a, this is an awesome statement, that gods made with hands are not gods. Amen? Amen. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So we are learning that idolatry is at the center of every culture. Idol worship is at the center of every culture. Ephesus is no exception to the rule. From this passage, we learn and we've heard over the past several weeks how important Artemis was to the Ephesians. To refresh our memories, I thought about showing you a picture of the idol Artemis, but I thought, man, I don't know if I can show that in church. It's that graphic. If you want to Google and look up, it's a really, it's a really ugly picture of what idol worship actually looks like. And, but we learn how important Artemis was. She was the goddess of fertility. However, this had much more to do with just the, uh, with, uh, this had more to do with just fertility. It also related to the idea of those who worshiped her would be fruitful in their business and prosperous in all areas of their life. Which is, when, which is why when she's threatened, this idol is threatened, Demetrius becomes so enraged. We find this man, Demetrius, who was the head of the silversmiths, apparently, and held much influence over not just him or the silversmiths, but the trade. We find Demetrius here struggling with what Paul had to say, hearing the message of the gospel that God's made with hands are not God's. And as a result, many people are persuaded and Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen begin to lose their wealth, which is where their real idol resided. 
It had to do with their prosperity. It had to deal with their security that they found in being able to provide for themselves. Because if Artemis were the God that he believed her to be, then she would have had the power to stop this from happening. So not only was Demetrius at risk of losing his wealth, but he was at risk of losing his idol, the thing that he built his entire life around. What have you built your life upon? What idols are we at risk of worshiping and building our lives around? I'll mention this again in a few moments, but what is idolatry? Timothy Keller says that it's when we take a good thing and we elevate it to the ultimate thing. That if we lose it, we lose all will for life. So we need to learn, Christians, how to identify idols. I'm telling you that if you can learn as a believer through the word of God, how to identify idols, not just in your life, but in the lives of those around you, you will have great success in seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. Because if you can't help people see how they're worshiping idols and not worshiping Jesus, you're gonna give them the best ideas that you have, but they won't be able to overcome the strongholds in their life. We need to begin to identify idols. And this is where we need to stop for a second and talk about the nature of idolatry. I just mentioned it, that idolatry is when we elevate the created things to the place of the creator. Timothy Keller says, like I just said, that when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, that that's idolatry. And we do this, we trick ourselves, because we can seemingly manipulate our idols, our gods, to do our will. And we justify ourselves by controlling our gods. This is what I'm telling you. This is one of those things I'm like trying to understand this for myself. We find that once we have elevated something to the level of an idol in our lives, we are no longer in control of it as much as we are controlled by it. You know, there is no power in idols. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a piece of silver, whatever it might be. But lurking, we read about this in 1 Corinthians, behind every idol, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, the enemy is working to control us. You can see this being played out in this account. Demetrius, his idol is threatened, and as a result, he unwittingly puts himself and the entire city of Ephesus in danger of losing their freedom. He causes a riot that actually almost causes them to lose their lives. The power of the gospel is that we are justified by grace that we receive through faith. Jesus did it all. Everything required for salvation, Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and his resurrection. It's by simple belief in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us that we are saved. And if I'm being honest with you, this rubs our flesh the wrong way. If nothing is required for salvation and I respond by belief and in faith, then nothing in my life is left unavailable to God. He has all of me. But if I can control my God through my actions and through my worship, 
then my God is no God at all. I am God of my own life, which is the greatest form of idolatry. You got to catch this, that when we worship idols in our heart, we are saying that through our actions, through our behavior, that we are justified on our own and in our own strength. We see this in the garden when Adam and Eve sin, what's the first temptation? The, the apple and then, and then what, is, what is the temptation? What does the tempter say to Eve? Will you surely die? You will be like God. That's the temptation, people. That we could be like God. And every idol finds its footing in that thought that if I can only be good enough on my own, if I can justify myself, I will be like God. But this is not possible apart from the gospel. Our flesh recoils at the thought of getting something for nothing, which explains why we all have this love-hate relationship with our sin, right? Because as hard as we try, we'll never be good enough. And deep down, you know it. So when we look at cities like Ephesus, we may be tempted to think that we would never worship idols. But we're at a disadvantage if we think that way. In Ephesus or in other cities of the ancient East, you could point to the temples and identify their idols with ease. Our idols, however, are more elusive and therefore I think potentially more dangerous. Our idols are in our hearts. So learning to identify the idols of our world is critical to ensure that we will overcome and be victorious over the idols in our lives. You know, as we think about some examples of idolatry, we can think about a couple different areas. Personal idols, money, relationships, our children. If only I can get that promotion if only I can make a little bit more money, if only I can buy that home, if only I can wear those kinds of clothes. Achievement, right? That's idolatry if left unattended to and if not meant for the glory of God. Relationships. If only I can make that person love me, even to the extent of going too far in relationships just to make that person love me more. That's idolatry, our children. Can you believe that? Our children. We can worship our children in the sense that their success is our success. And when they blow it, man, doesn't that bother us? Because that's a reflection upon who we are. These are some personal idols that you and I experience in our own life. Did you know even religion is a form of idolatry? When we think that our behavior can earn us a spot in heaven, we can take the good thing of church, right? And we can turn it into an idol by becoming religious. In our culture, the idea that we are enough for ourselves, that we just have to embrace who we are, follow our passions and do what our heart tells us, that's idolatry. You have your truth, I have my truth. And this idolatry pervades our culture and I think has even infiltrated the church. So how do we overcome our idols? How do we overcome the idols in our life? There's only one way 
to overcome idolatry. It is to love Jesus more. That's it. That's it. That's what it boils down to. It, it's to know the gospel in a way that it pushes the idol out of your hearts so that there's no room left to worship anything else other than God. It is to know what Christ has done for you, Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. To have the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. So Christian, do you know the gospel? Do you know what Christ has done for you? Have you embraced the gospel? Do you know the word of God? Or are we giving into the idolatry of religion? This story has much to show us as Christians, how we can overcome idols, the idols in our culture. And it begins with the people of God knowing the good news of Jesus Christ personally. So let's take a closer look at the following verses, starting with verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know what they had, uh, why they had come together. Some, crowd, uh, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and other craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And we had said these things, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, what I'm about to talk about here as we get ready to close at the end mates might sound a bit controversial. And it might go against the grain. Isn't that always like a good way to get people's attention? And it might go against the grain of what we're used to and rub some of us the wrong way. But this last section of this narrative shows how we as Christians are to fight back against the cultural tide. We love that, don't we? Just got to get the right guy in office, right? 
Just got to get those people that are, you know, running our school systems out of there. And we got to make sure we just got to politically take over. And we got to make sure that people believe and think the way that we think. And we got to get rid of all these people who think differently than us. Right? We fight. Like, that, that's what seems natural to us. But this last section shows how Christians are to fight back against culture. But it doesn't look like what we would expect. As Christians living within the world, our lives should look so differently from the world around us that we don't need to go looking for trouble. It'll come looking for us. Here in Ephesus, there were so many people persuaded by Paul, the gospel was moving forward in such power that the church was multiplying so quickly that it disrupted the culture and the economy around them. This was a natural byproduct of the gospel. Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen were so enraged that they begin to shout, great is Artemis, and they drag Gaius and Aristarchus into the theater. Imagine with me a theater that could hold 24,000 people. Paul, clearly feeling responsible for this situation, wants in on the action, but his fellow believers won't let him. In addition, it also mentions that there are Asiarchs. Think of the oligarchs, right? These are people of influence and power, rulers in the region. And this is where we see something interesting happen. Not only do these unbelieving, influential Asiarchs and friends of Paul come to Paul's aid, but the town clerk, the governor of the province, by the providence of God, protects the church. This is where we see how the government functions as a common grace. God, through the unbelieving town clerk, uses Roman law to protect the church. That's what's happening in this passage. And he brings up four reasons. He says, everyone already knows that Ephesus is the temple keeper of Artemis. These Christians are not sacrilegious blasphemers and troublemakers. And if you have a complaint, take it to the courts. And finally, he says that we're at risk of rioting, which is the sort of behavior that would land them all in trouble. You see, if Christians live their life, turn with me, let's do this together. First Timothy Let's go to 1 Timothy together. 1 Timothy, remember, Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus here. Paul's writing to him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. If Christians lived this way, we wouldn't have to go looking for trouble. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for all kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's how we live that's how we fight back against the cultural tide. As Christians, we don't need to forcefully overcome this world. 
The only thing that will accomplish is to offend others unnecessarily and place a target on the back of the church. The way that we overcome isn't by forcing our way in the world to make sure that it aligns itself with our beliefs. Instead, man, the way we overcome is by, be, by being the people of God. We want people to live according to the word of God and we don't even know the word of God. We want people to love Jesus and we don't even love Jesus. If we did, we wouldn't look the way that we look. We wouldn't be doing church the way that we're doing church. If we stayed in our lane and focused on what God calls us to in his world, word, we wouldn't have to worry about the world. If we were actually holy and righteous, holy like God calls us to be holy, we wouldn't have to go looking for trouble. It would come looking for us. When we as a church can learn how to do that effectively, watch out, Lehigh Valley. <laughs> watch out, Northampton County. When it does, we can be confident that just as God protected the church in Ephesus, he will protect and preserve his church here and now because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Last week, Pastor Tim took us on a deeper look at the church in Ephesus, and we heard the warning from Revelation chapter 2. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. You know, if you go to Ephesus today, you will find the ruins of an ancient city, and I can't help but wonder, what came of the Ephesian church? Are they among the ruins of that city? The only way to ensure that our church, the church that we are a part of, continues in power is to identify idolatry in our own lives, to apply the gospel to our lives, and to live out our Christian witness in a dark world so that we can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me give you this picture. You don't shout at the dark, become light. You light a candle. You are the light of the world. Act like it. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. Lord, I pray, God, that your word would accomplish what you send it out to do in our hearts. God, I pray that we would know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and that we would actually live like it. That we would live as people of God in a world that has no hope. God, Demetrius was afraid. He was afraid that his God was losing power. His little G God. Lord, we're afraid if we're honest that, oh man, what if the church fails? What if the gospel is threatened? What if, oh my, Lord, what are we worshiping? Because my God is victorious. The gospel is victorious. That's why it's such good news. So Lord, help us to live like the people of God in our world so that we can see your kingdom advance throughout the Lehigh Valley. Help us to love Jesus more, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.